Well, good afternoon and welcome to a very special edition of Pure with me, Howard Thompson, here at WPKN Bridgeport, broadcasting at 89.5 FM and streaming at WPKN.org. It's special because today I have with me lead singer, soul lyricist and songwriter Richard Butler of the Psychedelic Furs, whose latest album, Made of Rain, is released today. Richard's kindly agreed to share his thoughts for the next three hours. So thanks, and welcome back to WPKN. It's a real honour to have you here, Richard. Hey, Howard. (laughs) Always nice to see you. (laughs) And you too. We just heard the opening song to your debut. Uh, What a way to make an entrance. Um, Let's go back to the beginning. Tell me about your early life and your upbringing. Well, I was raised by... I, both parents influenced me musically, I suppose. When I was very, very young, my mother was always singing. I mean, it was always... But it was always like Doris Day and, you know, Somewhere Over the Rainbow and that kind of thing. So I remember always singing from when I was very, very young. Um, my father was a, a, a scientist for, for, for the British government and, uh, and a communist, uh, and he, he would listen to all sorts of stuff. Woody Guthrie, um, Big Bill Brunsey, a lot of blues, Marlena Dietrich, Charles Aznavour, Edith Piaf, a lot of stuff that I still really respect and, and, and like. And then when Bob Dylan came around, he started buying Bob Dylan records. So I was listening to Bob Dylan when I was about nine or ten, and, you know, I used to walk to the station with my father, and he would be singing, you know, we'd sing Bob Dylan songs, we'd sing Big Bill Brunsey songs, wow. <laughs> Muddy Waters songs. And, uh, you know, we'd, he would bring a new uh, Bob Dylan record back and sit down and play it. And we'd discuss what the lyrics meant and what we thought it was about. And so I got, uh, you know, he was very responsible for my interest in lyrics, I, I think. Wow, that's fascinating. I think when I was nine, I was singing Billy Fury songs. <laughs> <laughs> what were the Billy Fury songs? Well, I mean, like I've never been gone, uh, halfway to paradise. Who was, I wish you would take a nap, little children. That was Billy J. Kramer. Ah, and the Dakotas. And the Dakotas, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I remember yeah. that one. <laughs> okay, so who was your first pop idol? I think it was probably the Beatles. Really? Yeah, yeah. Not not anything like Cliff Richard before? No, no, Adam no. Faith? I, I think I went to see uh, Cliff Richards in the shadows at, in um, Blackpool, actually. We used to go up, my grandfather retired there, and we'd go up there around Illuminations time, and I think I saw Cliff and the Shadows there. Really? Wow, that's pretty cool. I've got to say, what kind of schools do you go to? Um, Just secondary. I went to secondary school. My brother got into grammar school. He was smarter than me. Mm -hmm. I I failed to pass the 11 plus, as it was at that time. Uh Uh-huh. Um, but so I didn't like the local school. It was a little bit rough and I heard, you know, weird stories about it. So I had to travel about, you know, 15 or so miles, 20, 20 miles maybe to Epsom. And so I went to Epsom secondary modern Longmead. Right. And isn't that, didn't you go on to art school after that? Yes, I did. Yeah. In, it, in also, Epsom? Also in Epsom. Right, right. Which incidentally had the highest concentration, apparently, of mental homes in England. Epsom did. <laughs> Epsom did. I, so I heard. Gosh. How was art school? It's fantastic. It was, it was great. Did anyone else famous go there? 
Um, no, not that I know of. I mean, I know that... Because all the pop stars, of the great pop stars during the 60s seemed to have gone to art school. I mean, yeah, the yeah. Kinks Jeff and, Beck went yeah. to art school, I think. Uh, Jimmy Page, didn't he go to art school? Probably. Yeah. Um, uh, John Lennon certainly did. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Wow. Yeah. But um, so Eric, okay. Clapton, Eric Clapton might have to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think Ian McLagan might have gone there. Uh, the small faces guitarist, uh, keyboard player, excuse me. When you left school, what did you do? Um, yeah, I, I didn't know quite what to do. I wanted to be a painter, and but I didn't know really how to go where where to go for that. You know, you I mean? wanted to be a painter for a career. Yes, yeah, yeah, I wanted wow. to be a painter. And, um, but, you know, I'd go down to Bond Street and, you know, that, that was my only, the only touch point I had with painting. I thought, how the hell do you get into one of these places? I mean, they're, they're showing David Hockney and stuff like that. And these are galleries, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Street. and I thought, how do you get into these, you know? And I, 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 I so I started, with, I'd, I'd, you know, worked at uh, art, sc- art school, I'd started doing sc- silkscreen printing because I was very into the whole Andy Warhol thing and I loved silkscreen printing, but not that that aesthetic so much. I was doing different, you know, I was doing word prints actually. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, I was working in a silkscreen place and punk rock came along and I, I kind of thought, why don't we form a band? So basically I asked my, both my brothers were interested, but first it was Tim that I asked actually, the, the, still with us, the bass player. Yeah. Um, and he decided he'd like to play the bass. I think he thought it was easier to play because it only had four strings and he <laughs> only had to deal with four rather than six. So he opted to be the bass player. Uh-huh. Duncan Kilburn was also a friend of my brother's, Simon, yeah. who was also in the band at that point, as was Roger Morris. And we were basically a, a group of friends in, you know, around Leatherhead, you know. So was it a band that you saw that you decided to become a punk rock group? Or was it just the papers that you were reading, thinking this was a good idea? or A bit, what, of, what really, a bit of both. What was um, it that inspired you to make that move? Well, when I was at art school, actually, I was, I, I was listening to a lot of... Um, um, uh, New York Dolls, I think, were the first out, and then the Ramones shortly after that, and they really spiked my interest in music, those two records. And then England exploded with uh, the Sex Pistols and the Clash, and I went down to see... I, I tried to see... Actually, I was living in Leeds for a while, and I tried to see the Sex Pistols in Leeds, but they cancelled the show. And then I went to see them at the 100 Club with uh where Susie and the Banshees were also well, a rudimentary Susie and the Banshees were on the bill with Marco and, and Sid Vicious yeah yeah playing I drums was, yeah. I, I was at that gig <laughs> Richard we were in the same room and didn't know it <laughs> I was on the right as you look at the stage I was on the right hand I was side. on the left <laughs> well we could have met that yeah. night wow. wrong, wrong side of the stage uh-huh um, I'll never uh, if, if, let me interrupt for a second because I, I I do have something to tell you about that show. As soon as it had finished, 
I was on my way out of the 100 Club and Caroline Kuhn, who was a journalist at the Melody Maker. Yeah, I, uh, she was rather beautiful. She was very she? beautiful. She, and didn't she, she date Paul Simonon? Yes, she while? was. Yeah. I, I don't think she'd started at that point dating Paul Simonon. It's possible, but um, they were an item for quite a while. And, and she had previously, when I was at school, worked for a, a concern called Release, which managed to get or tried to get people who had been busted by the police for minor drug offences out of jail or yeah. you know help them in court etc so caroline was a really cool person and she worked for the melody maker and she did the singles reviews and she was reviewing this gig and on my way out she said to me howard how what do you what did you think what do you think of Susie?" And I said, and I just turned around to Caroline and said, God, it was awful. <laughs> it kind of was. It I mean, was terrible. The Lord's it, Prayer. They, they did the, <laughs> the Lord's Prayer and Helter Skelter for 20 minutes. And it was, that Going was the into, show. But didn't it go into Deutschland Uber Alles as yes, well? <laughs> something like that. It was just, it was the worst cacophony with Sid Vicious playing drums, which he couldn't play. Uh, and Marco playing guitar. And I mean, you know, I, I, later I managed to work with Marco so that I can't be rude about him. <laughs> Um, Susie looked great, but but really just sort of yelled into the mic. And, and I guess, was it Severin? I think, I think it was, actually, yeah. Anyway, but that was their gig. And I turned around to Caroline and said, God, it was awful. And the next week, that was the first line in her review in Melody Maker, <laughs> says Howard Thompson, A&R man at Island Records. <laughs> God, it was you know, awful. So that, that was the first time I, I, I remembered immediately. No, I made a mental note at that point, never to talk to journalists again. <laughs> so that was uh, a lesson learned. It was but a pretty fantastic show, though. It was fantastic. Absolutely. I mean, the the, Sex Pistols, I'd never seen anything like it. Right. I'd, I'd never seen that much that that much charisma and anger, yeah. both at the same time. It was phenomenal. Totally. Really. I mean, and, and, and the time itself was exciting because there was an electricity in the air. There was a lot of pissed off kids yeah. and the kids were going to show you know us garbage strikes and oh yeah it was that's right britain yeah, was, yeah yeah absolutely all right um i'm going to sprinkle tracks from the new album as we talk uh and uh, one of my favorite songs from the new album is you'll be mine um the first time i heard it i thought maybe you'd brought in andy mckay from roxy music <laughs> um to play some oboe on it but uh, you corrected me i was wrong and told me it was longtime first saxophonist mars williams yeah, yeah. It's playing soprano sax yeah, on it. yeah yeah of course and now now i hear it it's it's fairly obvious that it's a soprano sax and i should know the difference because i used to play the oboe um but i mean i was i'm always rooting to hear oboes on records you know and andy mckay was the only guy and there was a woman called kate st john who was a terrific oboe oh yes she was in england uh, she's a session player and what band was she in uh, northern song what wasn't it Northern Song? Um, Life in the Northern Town. Oh, right. Did she play on that? I Probably. She, I, mean, if, I if thought any, she was a member of that band. Maybe. I don't know. I, I can't remember the band's name, to be honest. But whenever there was an oboe on an English pop record, it was usually her. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. All right, this is You'll Be Mine from the new record, Made of Rain. Okay, that was You'll Be Mine from the new Psychedelic Furs album, made of rain i originally came to see you 
Richard, after Giovanni Durimo, a writer for a music weekly called Sounds. God bless him. In the UK. Yes, Giovanni. Giovanni was a, a, a terrific guy. Um, he told me over lunch that he thought I should check you out. Later that afternoon, I noticed in Time Out or something that you were playing at the Nashville Rooms, a pub venue in West Kensington the following night, June the 24th. In 1979, this is. You came out in white face. And, <laughs> and, and lipstick. And, and, <laughs> I was going to say, you might have been wearing lipstick, but you owned up. And halfway through the show, there was a fight in front of the stage, and three of the band jumped off and into the crowd to sort it all out. During which, actually, Gary Newman jumped over the bar to hide behind yes, the I, bar. Yes, I heard that, yeah. Um, anyway, there was fights at loads of gigs in London at that time. It was right in the sort of middle of it all. And uh, and so the pubs and venues never hired security or anything. So in this particular <laughs> there was lots case, of drinking going on. Tons of it, tons of it. And this particular case, it, was sort, it fell to the band to sort out, but they did. And um, that impressed me no end. And four days later, your managers, Les Mills, and a striking woman called Tracy Collier, were in my office at CBS and we were discussing putting you into the studio to do some demos. Three days later, you were in Basing Street Studios and I had something to play for my boss, Muff Winwood, who then agreed to come to see your gig at the Music Machine on Tuesday, July the 3rd, which is where, between the songs Fall in Love and Dumb Waiters, one can just about hear him say on my cassette, shouting above the din, they're effing great. We should sign them. And so we did. We did, we did a <laughs> signing photo at the Nags Head in High Wycombe at one of your other shows. And then we were off to the races. My job was to find a producer. So letters to David Bowie, Brian Eno, John Cale, and probably quite a few more were sent out and roundly ignored. In fact, <laughs> because you guys were so anxious to get a single out, it fell to me and engineer Ian Taylor to supervise the first proper recording session, which was two days at Phonogram Studio near Marble Arch. In those two days, we finished three songs, two of which made up the first single, and all of which managed to land on the debut album. I think it might have been the second thing I ever produced. But one thing about the session struck in my mind, your insistence that your vocal remained dry. No echo, no reverb, no effect whatsoever. <laughs> it had to be exactly and only your natural voice. Do you remember that? Absolutely, yes. It's funny how things have changed since. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, different times. You absolutely. Know, it well, was not a time for pop music. It was, you know, a time for kind of... An, Honest. It was about you yeah, know, honesty, really. Exactly. And not wanting to be overproduced and wanting to be real. You're absolutely right. Absolutely. And, and it worked beautifully because, uh, in fact, only uh, a couple of weeks ago, Steve... Di Costanzo here at the station played We Love You and uh, it gives me quite a thrill to hear We Love You on American radio, that first <laughs> single by the Psychedelic Furs, especially as it, I didn't really hear it on the English radio <laughs> No, you wouldn't. At the time. <laughs> anyway. Maybe on John Peel he might have oh, I think it. I think he did because he was, you, you did some sessions for him yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the single did well enough to peak at number four on the alternative chart 
chart, which in 1979 was a new thing. We didn't, alternative music hadn't really, the phrase hadn't really been no. coined. And um, so when an alternative chart showed up and a week or two later, the psychedelic furs were number four, <laughs> it gave them enormous, well, it gave, it gave them good credibility uh, and it made my job in finding a producer a whole lot easier. And uh, we uh, managed to attract the producer of the moment, Steve Lillywhite, whose credits at the time included Susie and the Banshees, Johnny Thunders, Steel Pulse, Ultravox and XTC. What well, do you remember? Had he done Peter Gabriel at that point? He may have. Uh, I know he did Peter Gabriel early like around 1980, uh, maybe he started in 79. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure, but um, it's quite likely. I, did, I noticed Peter Gabriel's name was in the list, but they didn't give the months. So, it <laughs> you know, he could have done it sooner, right after. But anyway, Steve was a good lad. And um, I forget, I remember doing Talk, Talk, Talk at Rack Studios. Did Where did, where did the first album get? Did, Rack Studios is, as well. Oh, yeah? yeah. Okay, so both yeah. were done there. Okay. The late Mickey Most's place. Yes, I met I met uh, Mickey at those sessions and uh I also met during a psychedelic first session I met Kim and a 16-year-old Kim Wilde. She was in the next door studio, I think. And she signed a photograph for me. <laughs> at that time I, I thought she was super and that song Kids in America was Great little pop record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. I think Huey Green used to go to the pub down the corner. We saw him down there a couple of times. Well, that's maybe. not going to mean much to our American listeners. No, but really. Huey Green was a... Well, but he was a... Was he a talent show? Was it Opportunity Knock? Yes, was it was it? A com he was a compare <laughs> for a, a sort of um, England's Got Talent or America's Got Talent type of show yeah. where people would come on and be voted by a panel of idiot celebrities yeah a complete sleaze bag as well was he? apparently <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah we gave him some trouble down at the pub i think all right so do you anything to talk about those first two album sessions uh with steve was there anything that stuck in your mind well, a lot of it sticks in my mind. I, a lot of it, I mean, certainly for the first album, Steve said, you know, I don't want to put this, though, though he had a, a sound of his own, especially a drum sound, yeah. that w was, was his big thing. He said, I don't want to put my mark on you. I'm not going to, you know, produce you, inverted commas. I just want this record, our first record, to sound like a, a great live gig. And that, that was his whole thing. And he did a good job at that, I thought. Yeah, and I thought the great thing he did was that whole intro for India being very quiet. And the idea behind that was that people, it would be too quiet, so people would turn it up loud so they could hear the intro. And then when the song kicked in, Just it blow was their like, speakers. <laughs> <laughs> basically. <laughs> very. So, so when the song actually kicked in, it was incredibly loud. Right. Wow, know? what a good idea. It was brilliant, brilliant idea. And what a great song. Yeah. Anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play Sister Europe from those sessions, um, a tracker, a, a big favourite of mine.
I always thought Sister Europe would be a natural song for Marianne Faithful to cover, and I still do. I've made sure people have given it to her, but I, I don't know why she's... She probably just didn't listen to it, because I'm sure if she did, she'd want to do it instantly. I'll take the imaginary Marianne version and the actual Foo Fighters version that came out in 2002 as a B-side. Did you ever hear that one? Yeah, I don't think it's that bad, actually. I listened to it the other day. Okay. My daughter's very proud of the fact that... You know, the Foo Fighters have done it. I'd like, I'd like Marianne to do it. I mean, she definitely has heard it. She did some work with John while, while John was, you know, still oh. with the band. Uh, what became of that, I have no idea. But, I mean, she, she, huh. she definitely came down to see some shows of ours and hung out and... To me, it sounds like an obvious song for her. For that broken down voice. Yeah, I think she could do a killer version of it. Yeah, I do too. I've been thinking that ever since we put that record out. So, uh, (laughs) you know, maybe I'm wrong. But uh, anyway, so we're in 79, 1980. Who were you listening to then? Oh, good Lord. You know, the Ramones, the Clash, Mm -hmm. uh, the Sex Pistols. Probably still listening to the New York Dolls. Uh, When did Roxy Music appear? 70... Three, yeah. So I will I'll definitely be listening to a lot of Roxy right. music, David Bowie, the Only Ones. You know, lots of things that were around at that. Were time. you living in Muswell Hill at that time? Uh, yeah. yeah, I remember coming to your. I think you had a flat on Grassmere. Road. I did Muswell Hill, home of the Kinks. Yeah, Viv Stanshaw, yeah. Fairport. And we're the fair- psychedelic furs. <laughs> <laughs> were Fairport Convention from there? Yeah, yeah, they oh, were. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, Simon Nickel from the band lived... His, his dad had a doctor's practice in Muswell Hill. I, I used to go past it every day on my way to primary school. And um, the house was called Fairport. Oh, yeah? So that's ah, how Fairport got their name. Okay. So Muswell Hill's quite the place. Yeah, and where we, where we grew up before we moved up to London, I think Pink Floyd were kind of from around the same sort of Leatherhead, really? Bookham sort of area, okay. I believe, yeah. The press at the time of those early records, the first two records, seemed to think that the Velvet Underground played a big part in your listening habits. So would you say that was correct? Yeah, the Velvet Underground were a huge influence, you know, you know, as was Bob Dylan. I hadn't let go of that influence, still haven't, really. No, right. Velvet Underground, Roxy Music, yeah. David Bowie. Yeah, there was a lot of different stuff I was listening to and very influenced by, you know, all of those things. How did you get to hear stuff like the Velvet Underground because other than reading about it in the papers all the time they they didn't really have much of a presence in England as as we were growing up no I don't know I was at art school (laughs) Uh, they were playing it all the time (laughs) everybody was talking about it okay no but I do remember Lou Reed's first album being around out around that time the one that Rick Wakeman played on with Uh the kind of Fabergé egg yeah 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 yeah. okay so let's listen to a couple from Made of Rain I think your voice has never ever sounded better than it does on this record I'm very very happy for you you. I mean as as people tend to age they get croakier you get clearer yeah well i was croakier earlier on <laughs> since i quit smoking i've got clearer <laughs> not drinking so much milk either these days right. okay well whatever it sounds really fantastic on this album and i thoroughly urge everybody to go check it out and it's especially good on this one wrong train and i'm glad to see original furs guitarist john ashton in the writing credits with you and tim on this Oh, good. There. Thank you. Yeah, John was a John was a good part. It was an idea that actually Tim took up to Woodstock 
Um, and John filled it out, and then Tim brought it back, and I put the lyrics on it. Two there from Made of Rain, both as good as anything the Furs have ever done, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. I'm very excited for you, Richard. As a fan from way back, I think anyone who used to be a fan is going to like this album. How does this album feel to you compared to others? It's difficult to say, because when you first make something, it's always about how you feel about it at that time. Yeah. You know, and you always think this is great and then some time will go by and you go eh, maybe it's not so great <laughs> <laughs> but you know i mean albums like i mean i would say my probable favorite is talk 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 and the recording of that was so chaotic but it felt so exciting and it was so of the times and so influential mm-hmm. in in its time in a, in a way um that it's hard to recreate that because music isn't the same now you know as it was back then the whole music industry isn't the same now yeah i, mean, I was going to ask you how does it feel like being on an independent label like cooking vinyl compared to well those labels that you used to be on yeah uh well specifically uh well, columbia Sony, Columbia's CBS, <laughs> but you were with Warner's too, you know, and, yeah. and Warner's is a huge label. Yeah, um, I don't really take much notice. I, I must say, Cooking Vinyl seemed to be doing an, a fantastic job of you know promoting it and you know building up the vibe for it, and mm-hmm. you know coronavirus, you know, allowing I will be over there doing interviews for a right. couple of days in, sure. in the near future. I think it's probably quite different to what it used yeah, to be, yeah? yeah. You know, it used to be that, you know, that record companies would say, go out on tour, we'll give you this money to go on tour. They don't really support you in that sort of right, way. Right. But, you know, they we signed to them for, you know, a, a budget and we made the record within that budget. They don't take pieces of your T-shirt sales, do they? No, 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 okay. no, no, no. Good, all right. Yeah, because some terrible. labels do that. I mean, and well, I, I've heard horror stories from bands where they, you know, that they give you an advance and then they can, you know, take it from your um, live performance merchandising yeah. you know, across the board. They Everything. take it back until they get it. You know, and that's that's not good. No, it's not. And let's not even discuss their accounting practices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Uh, very, anyway. very opaque yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd like to just sort of tip my hat to Mars uh, some lovely sax parts on uh, This Will Never Be Like Love Mars does a very nice job fantastic I mean, it, to, it, to my mind he might be the best sax player in the world I mean when he's not Play, or certainly one of them. Right. When he's not playing with us, he's out doing his his own. Is he free, still playing funk music in no, Chicago? No, they, no, he does. He does free jazz. You know. Oh, really? Like bebop, kind of. Oh, be, wow. Bebop with with beats, but it's it's pretty amazing. Oh, you know? good. And, oh. and he does a lot of jazz festivals in Europe. And does he put CDs out? Oh, yeah. What? Have him send me one. He did one. an Albert Ayler Christmas um, CD and. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I think the station needs one. Tell him. <laughs> I will. Do. <laughs> Thank you. There's one more from the debut I want to play because it probably never got very much airplay in its day and probably still doesn't. And it's one of my favorite songs of all time by anybody. This is Black's Chaos Radio, only on WPKN. From the Psychedelic Furs eponymous debut 40 years ago, that's Black's Chaos Radio, as it used to be known. It's actually just Black's Radio on the record. But where did you record the new album? In St. Louis. Does Richard Ford still live down there? Oh, yeah. yeah. Is but it his studio? No, no, no. Who's got a studio in St. Louis? 
uh, a guy called Jason, actually, uh-huh. um, who uh, engineered it and did a fabulous job. Yeah, and, it and sounds it was, beautiful, the record. It's great it's to gorgeous. Work with. Yeah. yeah, well, Richard did a fantastic job, and yes, also Tim, Tim Palmer did the mixing, who's also great. Okay. So. Was it mixed there or somewhere else? Tim mixed it down in Austin, I think. There's a really tight band feel on this record, and I'm happy to note that this is actually a record. It will be on vinyl, right? Yeah. As well as CD and digital. At the studio, did the whole band get together and play like a band does, or did uh, yeah, were uh, parts added at stages later on? Well, Mars, Mars didn't come to the studio sessions at the same time the band were there. We put down the basic tracks was... Uh, Paul Garisto, drums, uh, myself, Tim on bass, bass yep. and Rich Good on guitar. And okay. we put down the tracks live, pretty much. How long did that take? Um, we were there for two different sessions, both lasting about a week, a week or ten days. Uh, later on, we went back up to St. Louis, and we went to actually... Uh, Richard Fortis does have a studio in his house, and that's where we put on uh, Mars. Did the overdubs there. Yeah. Did you? Is that where you did your vocals? Um, I did some of them there. I did most of them, actually, the first time around. I, I, I tried... So I did some more in, in St. Louis around the same time Mars did the sax, but we opted for the first ones. Yeah. The vocal sounds great. Uh, you know, I, I can't get over how brilliant it does. Oh, I'm sorry, I keep repeating myself. <laughs> I'm not trying to embarrass you or anything. But I guess it's, you know, 30 years later, and I'm just so pleased that there's a new Psychedelic Furs record. <laughs> well, me too. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. Okay, how did you get involved or how did you find your new label, Cooking Vinyl? Rob found them. He, he, he shopped around a bunch of... Uh, Rob's your manager? Yeah, Rob, okay. Rob Dillman. Uh-huh. He went around a, a, a bunch of labels. There was a lot of interest, but he got the best vibe from Cooking Vinyl. You know, the, the most genuine sort of grassroots excitement you know well any label that's going to put out billy bragg's entire catalog has got to know what it's getting involved with <laughs> and uh, is okay by me yeah, yeah you know they're a good label they always were yeah. and i think i've asked this before but uh, just to save me a little editing have you having been on big corporate labels like cbs and warners how does it feel like being on an independent like cooking vinyl you can be honest it's a, it's a very different feeling, uh, in a way, because uh, it varies with the times. I mean, as you remember, yeah. <laughs> having signed us, Howard, um, that, you know, in, in the early days of being on CBS, as it was then in London, I mean, the band would be hanging out and bringing bottles of wine into your office. And yes, they were. Camping out and, you know, just getting drunk and playing music. <laughs> uh, that changed when we moved to America and it, be- you know, it became Sony. You know, the record, the feel as regards our relationship with the record company became very different. It was much more tenuous and much more business-like, really. And we, you know, it's not, wasn't a situation where we'd go in there with a bottle of wine and, you know, (laughs) sit down with Donny Einer and get hammered. Right. And um, it's all to do more with the times than it is with the actual record company. You know, it's very different then. It was very, you know, like we were saying before, MTV was very much part of the the business aspect of it, which it isn't now, Mm -hmm. you know, so... Mm -hmm. You know, I've met the guys from Cooking Vinyl and they've come down to some shows and they're very nice people. Get along fantastically, but, you know, like I say, with different times, it changes, you know, band's record, you know, company involvement. 
Okay, if you've just tuned in, I'm privileged to have Richard Butler from the Psychedelic Furs stop by the PKN Studios and play us some songs from their latest album, Made of Rain. (laughs) Made of Rain, Howard. Made of Rain. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so here's the new single, Come All Ye Faithful. From Talk, 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 that's pretty in pink. And that was the band's second single to chart in the UK, although it only peaked at 43 in July 1981. It inspired John Hughes's movie of the same name, starring Molly Ringwald. And the band re-recorded the song, which this time got to number 18. And I think it was your first hit in the States. Yes, probably, yeah. Who was pretty in pink? Well, it was nobody that I actually knew. It was just okay. this vision of this girl or this thought about about this girl who, you know, slept around and thought it was clever to do so and, you know, liked the thought that the admiration she got was, you know, of a respectable kind and it actually wasn't and people were laughing and talking about it behind her back. Has it ever been published anywhere that sort of very low vocal at the end. Do you remember, you know, as the, yeah, the yeah. song fades out, that you're carrying on about something, but <laughs> nobody can never actually hear what it is. Including me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so if I'm asking you, you couldn't tell me what the hell you're saying. Some of it is all the favourite rags are worn and other kinds of uniform that kid you, you're really free and something about individuality and you are what you want to be until tomorrow. Uh- I think it's something along those lines. Why was it so low in the mix? Because <laughs> <laughs> we wanted it to be mysterious. No, you certainly won that one. Okay, thank you. That's uh, a problem solved, folks. <laughs> well, you know, to a degree. I don't to think that's quite what it says, but I, you know, that's as close as I can It's think. very good. What did you think of America when you first came over? I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah. me too. I couldn't believe... The- it was the world of the Velvet Underground and Andy Warhol. And, yeah, you know, you know, at that point, Andy invited us to his studio, and we hung out you, there. Did you get to go to the factory? Yeah, but it wasn't the old. It wasn't the Silver Factory. Okay. After I think after was it after he got shot. He, he changed to a factory on Union Square, right. which is very different, very different vibe. It's kind of this lovely wood-panelled building. And, and were there lots of people hanging around in it at that point? No, or? not the same as it had been at the Silver Factory, no. Tell us something about the inner sanctum there, the Warhols. <laughs> um, well, because I don't think many people really know what. what I mean, they, they know who Andy Warhol is and yeah. what he's done, but what was it like? Well, up there was there? a girl that worked at CBS called Susan Bond, I believe. Yes, and uh, she was somehow involved with the Warhol circle, and we were using some of Andy's um, silkscreen prints as backdrops for our show. We were using Marilyn Monroe's and electric chairs uh-huh. at that point, right? Susan said, you should come to the factory and and meet Andy. And so we went there and he was a very nice host. The whole band trailed in there and and he hosted us for lunch and he got some, uh, ordered some food out and, you know, we had white wine. And then um, I had some photographs taken actually holding some small gun paintings up and I was holding one to my head and he was just holding his out. And we had some photographs taken like that. Then after that, he came to a show we did at the Ritz and uh, he said, would you like to come to a party with me? Uh, Mick's having a party for Jerry down at Zenon, I think it was. (laughs) And I said, yeah, sure. And he goes, can we take the tour bus? And I said, okay. 
And so we all piled on the tour bus, and he was with, I, I forget what girl it was, she was the cover of an interview magazine that month or week or whatever it was. And he started, he borrowed her makeup and started piling on makeup, and he's like putting on this foundation on and blusher and lipstick and eyeshadow and everything. And the bus arrives at Zenon, and he gets some wipe-offs and wipes all the makeup off his face. And he goes, let's go. And so... I say, come on, guys, you know, to the band. He goes, no, no, Richard, not the band, just just you and me. And I'm like, okay, that might be awkward, but we went anyway. Yeah. I'm walking across the dance floor <laughs> with Andy Warhol. I feel somebody reaching down and holding my hand. And it's Andy Warhol <laughs> holding my hand across the dance floor at Zenon. And I thought, this is weird. But, you know, hey, it's Andy Warhol. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, we, we went backstage to this party, which had actually wound down at that point. There was only a few people around. I think Michelle Phillips was still there. And uh-huh. We hung out, and John Ashton came back and was talking to Michelle Phillips, and we hung out there for a bit and then just dispersed. <laughs> very odd, very odd evening. <laughs> I bet that's the first time that story's been aired on yeah. the radio. <laughs> All right. Well, that's great. Thank you, Richard. I thought that Hurrah was your first show in America, but you told me you did the Mud Clubs yeah. uh, as, as your debut in America. But I came over for some reason. Maybe it was specifically to see you at Hurrah. I know I remember being there because it was the first time I ever had a Quaalude. <laughs> it's the first time I ever I'm saw I'm surprised it. you remember anything. <laughs> yeah, well, I remember falling over. I remember you wearing a pink frock coat, yeah, which then was subsequently stolen. And yeah. I remember going backstage and you were talking with David Bowie. Was that the first time you ran into David? Uh, no, the first time I ran into David was backstage at a Susie and the Banshees concert. I believe it might have been the Hammersmith Odeon or the Rainbow one of the two and uh, my brother Tim was really drunk I was actually talking quite civilly with uh, Susie and, and David and my brother came staggering up and said can't f***ing act can you to David Bowie <laughs> and, uh, and David Bowie said that's because I didn't take your advice isn't it and Tim said I didn't give you any advice and David Bowie clicked his finger and said that's what it is <laughs> <laughs> Very sharp. Yeah, he, well, he was very sharp. He yeah, yeah. Very witty. You know. Yeah. Who are you listening to these days? Anything modern? Anything young and new coming up? Well, I keep in touch largely through my daughter. She loves Stormzy. I mean, she's huge on Stormzy. So, you know, she gets me listening to some Stormzy. She turned me on to, you know, Billie Eilish, who's now huge, yeah, you know, everywhere. Yeah. But I had somebody sent me an, a video of Billie Eilish about 18 months ago and said, would you have signed her? And it was like this video with sort of black stuff pouring out of oh, her yeah, eyelids. Oh, yeah, I love that something. video. I, so yeah. so I, I emailed back, no, I would never. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I think of Billie Eilish, uh, folks. So, yeah, on the cutting edge as usual. <laughs> she listens to a lot of grime, and I, I, uh-huh. I like some of that. Well, let's listen to uh, the new album's opening cut. What can you say that, about what inspired this song? In, in a weird way, it's kind of about 
Las Vegas era Elvis Presley in a way. In fact, I almost called the song by uh, Elvis Presley's birthday, but I thought, yeah, well, nobody will get it. <laughs> right. But it was kind of about, you know, in in my mind, about Elvis Presley in a way. So here we are, the boy who invented rock and roll. Love My Way and Sleep Comes Down from Forever Now. It killed me that Love My Way wasn't a gigantic smash in the States. It deserved much higher than 44. Recorded up near Woodstock at Todd Rundgren's studio. How was it working with Todd? Fantastic. It was really good. It was, it was very odd, though. I mean, Todd didn't know quite what to expect because we were on tour with the whole band, including Duncan and Roger. And we turned up to his studio as, as a as a six-piece, and when we came to record the album, we dumped two, and it was down to a four-piece. So he didn't know quite what to make of that. But he brought in a cellist, another sax well, player. Well, actually, actually, we had we'd put a cello on it uh, on President Gas in, in London on the demo. And ah. so we knew we wanted a cello on it because okay. I, I was really into that Stravinsky Rite of Spring, that din 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 that kind of thing. So yeah. that staccato sort of cello. So we knew we wanted that on it. And we just figured we wanted to change the sound. And Vince was very into Todd Rundgren. It was his big idea, actually, to use Todd. The idea came through, and I thought, wow, yeah, this is a good idea. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for I remember the deal, it was $125,000 all in. He would produce, mix, rehearse, feed. <laughs> you know house house the group and and you would get an album at the end of it you know so we thought well that sounds like a good idea and yeah. uh, so uh, carry on he was uh, he must have brought in gary window because that's a local boy he did well he brought in the the, the whole wheat horns as well which was a lo- local to woodstock i think which okay was a whole horn section gary he, he certainly brought in he also brought in flo and eddie yeah yeah um who had done backing vocals on mark bolan and sure. uh, frank zappa yeah you know, yeah stuff and yeah. uh I remember meeting them during those sessions. Nice guys. Who was the man on the stairs? That was Todd. His studio was set up. It was like a really big shed. Yeah, and the control room was upstairs. That's right. And Todd would sit on the stairs and, you know... Like ah, give direction okay. and you know right what, i remember that I, I remember the studio now but uh i was reading the credits yesterday and i thought and, and there was a thank you to the man on the stairs and <laughs> That's I thought, <laughs> okay um, he, he was great to work with actually he, you know when, when it came to mixing he was very fast he'd do a mix and then say what you know what do you think and he'd, he'd play it to us and go yeah could we have the cello up a bit and the vocal down and on that bit could you bring the guitar up and he'd go okay basically f off <laughs> for 10 minutes really so we'd go out on the balcony of the stu- of the studio and uh, literally 10 minutes later he'd go come check this out and we'd go in and go yeah that's good that's what we wanted yeah he didn't like people being over his shoulder but he, 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 he would listen to them he absolutely took direction did you like his version of love my way oh the sort of samba weird <laughs> Not particularly. <laughs> I know. It, was, it, was, it should have been better. It was Todd Rungan, for heaven's sake. It should have been great. I know. I did like, I, I, I like, I loved the fact that it was used in Call Me By Your Name. Did you see that film? No. What's that? Oh, yeah. It was Love My Way. It was used in Call Me By Your Name. You should, oh, I actually get a name check. In the film? Yeah. Because they're speaking Italian and I get it. It's written on the bottom of the screen <laughs> what they're saying. It says, 
Richard Butler, I saw him in London. He was fantastic, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was sitting, sitting and watching the movie with my girlfriend, and I thought, what? <laughs> Completely taken aback. Wow. But in a good way. All right. Another one from the new album, Turn Your Back On Me. Anything to say before I play this one? No, not really. From the Psychedelic Furs fourth album, Mirror Moves, Heaven, produced by Keith Forsey, who, if my memory serves, was Giorgio Moroder's drummer. And, he was. And played on some of Donna Summer's hits. Yeah. He also produced Ice House and Nina Hagen, but it was Billy Idol's White Wedding, Dancing With Myself and Rebel Yell that he was riding high on when he started with you guys. I think after this album, one of his next jobs was producing Don't You Forget About Me for Simple Minds. How'd you get on with Keith? Loved him. He was great. Yeah, really nice bloke. And he was a great drummer himself. A lot of the drums on that were, were Lynn drums. Yeah, and we had Tommy Price from a Billy Idol band play right. on uh, uh, one song, and, and we actually got Keith into the studio to play on another. He really didn't want to, but we, we managed to talk <laughs> The drummer into... didn't want to play drums? <laughs> I know. He, he told me a story about Giorgio Moroder, where he said he would get Keith into the studio and get him playing just bass drum. And yeah. then Giorgio would walk out the studio and leave him there for about 20, 20, five minutes playing the same bass drum <laughs> so you must have had a good sense of time to keep it all straight absolutely <laughs> uh, the actual story that uh, keith told me was that he wanted brian ferry to sing don't you forget about me that was the dream he had in his mind okay and brian ferry turned it down so it came down to simple minds to do it so you recorded with keith forsey in la did you like la not at all, no. Not I mean, I like the studio, I like recording with Keith Forty, but LA is not a town that I ever got to like. I didn't, it didn't have a, doesn't have a pulse really, does it? You know? No, not really. I found it sort of soulless and... Yeah, depressing uh, in, in a way. It's certainly not New York. Yeah, you know, or London. Yes, you know. right. All right, well, here's another one Keith Forsey produced from that album, Mirror Moves. This is The Ghost in You. Tiny Hands from the new album Made of Rain, written by Richard and his brother Tim Butler. How is Tim? Fantastic. I mean, he's the heartbeat of the psychedelic furs, really. He's, I mean. al he's always there. <laughs> <laughs> Please give him my very best I when will you do. talk to him. All right. And before that, we heard The Ghost in You, which has been covered by several other artists, including Robin Hitchcock, Counting Crows, Duncan Shake, Mark McGrath of Sugar Ray, The Reflectors. I rather liked The Reflectors version. Somebody called Blue Minds and a bunch of others. It might be my favourite ballad of yours, Richard. That's on the Mirror Moves album and I uh, just wanted to say that I first heard Robin do it after he'd come off stage from a show at the Mercury Lounge he there were about six of us sitting at a table uh, waiting to see him and he came out with his acoustic guitar and suddenly he just launched into the ghost in you and it was one of the most mesmerizing things I ever saw Robin do and eventually it showed up on his record The Man Upstairs and that came out I think uh, about five years ago something like that he's hilarious I mean we did we did some dates with him live and he's his patter between songs is Really weird and really funny. I love Robin for that. And he's a big fan of yours, by the way, because since that Mercury Lounge gig, I've become quite friendly with Robin myself and will try and see him whenever I can. And we occasionally converse on by email. Um, but he's always very complimentary about the psychedelic furs and especially you. Yeah, I, I text back and forth with him sometimes. Good. 
Well, you've not recorded for a long time, but it hasn't stopped you touring. In fact, it seems like you've toured a fair amount over the last 10 years. Do you still enjoy being on the road? I love it. I love, well, I, I don't like the travel part of it. You know, I love the time on stage. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic and, you know, an incredible, like, adrenaline rush. But, you know, I mean, the travel and the amount of shows, I mean... Well, hang on. You just said you were in Peru and Chile, and uh, is that not... Does that kind of not appeal still? I mean... Well, no. In a a, a weird way, no, sadly. Um, Because you're you're so busy. I mean, you either fly in or drive into a town. Okay. You You never see any of the... You don't really get to see any of it. You know, I mean, in uh, Peru, we we got to walk around the town with a bodyguard that they assigned to us. Mm -hmm. We saw a couple of things, and then it was back to do the show, and then off the next morning. You know, same thing with Chile, basically. You always say, you know, you're going to spend all this time, you, you're going to look around, you, you see these fantastic towns you're going to, you yeah. go, yeah, I'm going to look around, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there. And then, you know, by the time you're about a week into the tour, you're so exhausted already. All you really have the energy for is to do the, the show itself. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a shame, really. Yeah. (laughs) But it's been like that for a long time. (laughs) Then are you happy about playing the Royal Albert Hall next month, in May? Thrilled. I mean, I think that will probably be the biggest venue we've ever played in England. And Uh, talk about prestigious. First gig I ever went to was the Royal Albert Hall. Was it really? Who played? Led Zeppelin. (laughs) (laughs) I saw Led Zeppelin. I was 16 years old, and they played at a place called the Toby Jug Club in Tolworth. It was a bar at the back of a bowling alley. Me and my friend Keith Hodson. Keith Hodson actually stood on stage, and I was at the front left-hand side and they'd had a phenomenal tour in america meant absolutely nothing in england yeah. as yet but they played whole lot of love and he had the violin bow on the guitar and, uh-huh. the, and he was whizzing like an aerial round at one point yeah. a, and th- they were phenomenal they were like i got to see him it was kind of like the hundred club uh-huh. That similar thing of seeing a, a fantastic band in a very small place. Both those gigs, the Sex Pistols and Led Zeppelin, I, uh, probably the best shows I've ever seen. I can, I can totally relate. As if all of this isn't enough, you're an accomplished painter too. I wish I'd bought an oil painting from you when they were affordable, but I do have a couple of things you gave me a long time ago. Your workbook, lovely little blue exercise book with lyrics of the uh, first album. It's fantastic. Very much um, one of the best things I have in my archives or collection. thank you. Thank you. And you gave me a poster of a very early psychedelic furs I, I don't know if it was a gig because there was no venue mentioned on it, but there was a. It was, I guess, a generic kind of psychedelic first poster. It had the radio on the front, yeah, yeah. except it was a double radio. I was always thinking, "This is just my double Elvis." <laughs> <So>. <laughs> um, but it was gorgeous, you know, red and orange day glow and black paint, personally silk screened by you. So, I, and you know, I although I don't have one of your gorgeous oil paintings, I do have that, and I'm sure not many people. People have original psychedelic furs, silk screen posters by Richard. I bet, no, I bet nobody has one, to tell I, you the truth. I wouldn't be surprised if nobody yeah, I was, has one. That was in, in the very early days of the psychedelic furs, and I was working at a silk screen printing place, and I actually stole 
well, you know, I'd like to say borrowed, really. It sounds better, doesn't it? But purloined, whatever. The screen, the stencil material, stencil knife, squeegee, inks. And I, and I printed them on the breakfast table at the place where I was living. Do you have any exhibitions coming up? Painting? I yeah. have, I have a, a, um, a just had a show at, the, at Waltman Ortega in Miami, which did really well. I've got, you know, lots of offers from galleries to do shows, but, you know, if I've got a body of work, I'm never short of places to, to show them. Have uh, you got anything coming up in New York or around these parts, Connecticut? Um, no, not Connecticut, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Howard. <laughs> okay. Well, never mind. Let us know if you do, and we'll be there. What do you prefer, music making or painting? I love making a painting. I, mm -hmm. I do love that. And I love the solitude of it and the, the, the focus and the concentration. And, uh, you know, it's, it's time on your own. It's a very, it's a very lonely occupation. It's probably some, something similar to writing a book or something it's like that. There's a lot of introspection goes on. And, you know, you make a few marks and then you sit back for a while. There's more, more time probably spent looking at what you're doing than there is actually doing which is very different to being on stage where you know you, you're on stage for an hour and a half and it's just this craziness you know that you, you're putting out your you're spilling out your guts really in front of this fantastic noise and you know an, an appreciative audience it's a pretty incredible feeling too so you know, to choose between the two is, is very difficult yeah, thing to do. Yeah, I know. Do. It's a bit of an unfair question, especially when, <laughs> especially when you're so good at both. Anyway, um, I've played this one before. It was the first single from the new album, and this one's called Don't Believe. Can you tell us anything about this one? It was an idea that Tim came into the studio with in, in St. Louis, and there was only one part of the song that I really could get a handle on. And I said, Tim, why don't we, let, let's just go around this song, this, this part of this song with the band and make something more of it. And so that, that's where the whole band became involved with it. But it was basically a Tim idea that we all developed. And it's, you know, typical me, don't believe in anything, kind of psychedelic first nihilism. Oh, sorry about that. Starting us off, Don't Believe from the Psychedelic Furs new album, Made of Rain, out today on Cooking Vinyl Records. And Heartbreak Beat comes from their Midnight to Midnight album. And I've got Richard Butler from the group here in the studio, and he's generously given us his time to tell us about what being a psychedelic fur is like. <laughs> What's the best thing about being in the furs? Ah, there's a lot of great things about it. It's funny, I, I kind of like being an elder statesman of rock and roll at the moment. I kind of enjoy that part of it. Do people come to you and ask your thoughts on things a lot? But not so much that. It's just that, like, you know, bands that I never would have thought liked us, you know, turn around and, you know, like say, I, I, I love your work, you know, you're a big influence. Oh, you that's know? great. Yeah, you know, like The Killers. Funnily enough, when we played in Dublin, Joe Elliott from Def Leppard came down. And he's just like, I have a radio station here. I play you all the time. I love you guys. Our guitarist is mad about you. And it's, wow, Joe Elliott, Def Leppard. That, who would have guessed that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, when we started out, that would have been kind of anathema, you know. Yes. But nowadays, it's kind of, oh, well, okay. Okay, this one's called Ash Wednesday. Until She Comes is on the last album you did, 1991's World Outside. 
I thought it was a tremendous record, and until she comes hit the top spot of Billboard's modern rock chart. Yet the album, no, nah, not so much. She kind of didn't really make a great impression no, on the charts was, anyway. Everything was about grunge, I think, at that point, and the whole, the whole thing was kind of shifting, if I remember rightly. I, uh-huh. I think you're right. 91. Mm-hmm before it am i right in thinking this is the first time you've employed female vocals on a furs album it is yes richard fort is his daughters i had mentioned to him about getting uh yeah I, I knew he had some girls and i thought we could get a school class and he said well l- let me just get uh, my daughters to sing on it and so he did and it sounded fantastic so it we, does sound fantastic we used them on, a, on a, i think two or three songs and you told me earlier their ages Oh, I think 13 and 9, if I remember rightly. (laughs) Fantastic. All right, still with World Outside, this is Valentine. After the Psychedelic Furs halted operations around 92, he got in touch with Richard Fortas, who was a member of Pale Divine, openers for the Furs' last US tour, and started a new group with him and your brother Tim on bass. That, with Frank Ferrar on drums, was Love Spit Love. They did two albums, and I played Half a Life from the first one. Um, Hide the Medicine finds itself on Made of Rain. Anything to tell us about that one? That's the one song on the album, actually one of two songs that was co-written with Richard Fortas way, way back. And we never used it at the time, but it had always stuck with me, just the melody of it. And I've had the melody and the first verse for the longest time. I dragged it out while we we were in St. Louis. And today, how about this? Let's try this. So it's a good one. Thanks. Love that one. (laughs) And Valentine too. Got anything to say about that one? Valentine? No, it was weird. That, That was like... Remember when there was that whole Manchester sound thing going around? It yep. had that, that kind of swagger to it in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I liked it for that. Not known for doing covers, the B-side to Pretty in Pink in the UK saw the first doing Mac the Knife. <laughs> and apart from Love Spit Love covering the Smiths How Soon Is Now once for a movie soundtrack, I can't think of any other time you played anyone else's song, not even live. Is there one song by someone else that you'd like to have a crack at well we have we have we've covered two roxy music songs live really yeah yeah which uh, ones virginia plain and pajama rama we've done both of those live and loved playing them too it must be in the last five years yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay because i haven't seen you since that happy monday <laughs> show <laughs> no if you actually you can go on youtube and find pajama rama oh it's a will. great version oh, and some, good. somebody god bless them made a fantastic little video of it all right so here's mac the knife Mac the Knife eventually came out in the US as a bonus track on the 2002 edition of the first album. When you first formed the band, Richard, did you see yourself performing 40 years down the road? No, I didn't even... What what were your thoughts as to where this was going to go or end up? I didn't really have one. I mean... I loved Bob Dylan so much, you know, that when I hit about six foot, you know, I thought of Bob Dylan as being this five foot six guy with curly dark hair. I was was like, damn, I'm not five foot six with curly dark hair. (laughs) But I was a kid, you know. But I I, I always thought, how... 
how do you get to be that, you know? And then I, th- I thought the same thing about, you know, John Lydon when I saw the, the Sex Pistols. I thought, I want to be like that. Okay. You know? Not I want to be him. I want right. to be like that, mm-hmm. you know? That's what made me get up and want to do it. What did you think he would be doing in 40 years? I didn't. I didn't think about that at all. I never thought about the future, you know. It was just, if you'd told me then you'll be doing this in 40 years, I probably would have thought, oh, God, how boring. (laughs) (laughs) Right, okay. I saw an interview with you where you said you can't really play anything, just a few chords on a guitar. So it takes some balls to stand up there as a front man with a head full of words that sounded great together, but sometimes didn't make logical sense, <laughs> leading a bunch of two-chord wonders. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Sometimes you hit the right two chords, and when a third showed up, it was great. Um, Time to but, make an album. <laughs> exactly. But how did you know this was going to work? I didn't really, you know, I didn't know. You just know. had I, blind faith in... I didn't in... know it was going to work. I just I just loved doing it and we all loved being up there. I remember the very, very first show we ever... Show, inverted commas, the very first time we ever played. It was somebody's party in, in Leatherhead. And we, we all had our little amps that we took and we started tuning up. And as we started tuning up, everybody kind of crowded into the room. And it was a, a, a lovely summer day. So there were people, you know, outside and they'd all come in from the garden and stuff. We started playing. I think we started with Jonathan Richmond's Roadrunner. And by the time we were about three quarters of the way through, everybody had left. And uh, the last one kindly shut the door. (laughs) And we were just left basically rehearsing. (laughs) Oh, fabulous. Can you describe your writing process? Yeah. One One of the band will send me some music. I'll play it again and again and again to myself while I'm doing other things and walking around the house or doing whatever. You know, sometimes I'll find myself singing a melody, and that's when I know that that particular thing is going to work to some degree. And then once the melody is sort of established, then I'll sit down and write lyrics, and the lyrics come from things that are on my mind or or, or what that melody and music makes me think of the mood it puts me in right so it says the music comes first in other words it's has it always been that since day one throughout to now yeah you know i used to have a notebook and i still write down ideas and titles and little bits and pieces and i'll wake up and i'll you know get out my phone and put something on a memo hum something sing something to myself and you know some ideas they get involved with the music that i get sent your daughter maggie often serves as the subject or your muse of your paintings yes has she ever appeared in any of your songs no. Um, in fact, this is the first album we've made since she's been born. I think. <laughs> How old is she now? Oh, she's 22. <laughs> and finally. That was actually, that was the highest pressure show I've played. Um, was uh, she was coming down we played glasgow and she was coming down with some of her friends and she invited about 20 they 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 hired a bus from a university 
and they were coming down. I thought, Richard, you can't do a bad show tonight. It was really high pressure, but mm. it was a wonderful show, and you know, it was great yeah. to see her down there. And, yeah. Lovely, lovely. I'll give her my best. Last time, I last do. time I saw her, I think, was at that art thing on the piers. The Armory Show. Yes, the Armory Show. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Finally, no one. Yeah, I think that's it. You want to go get a beer? Mm-hmm. Let's go get a drink. Lovely to see you, Howard. Kiddo. Yeah, you too, Richard. And that was it. Richard came by the studios and we taped this back in March when the album was due to come out on May the 1st. We wondered at the time if the coronavirus would cause problems and of course it did. The release date was put forward to today, July the 31st. Their big concert at the Royal Albert Hall in London was postponed until April the 27th next year and we're still waiting to see what the band's tour plans here in America will look like. To find out, keep checking at thepsychedelicfurs.com. I'd like to thank Bruce Swan for letting me have his fifth Friday slot. His show, Music My Mother Wouldn't Like, usually appears on the second, fourth and fifth Friday of the month from 1 till 4 p.m., whereas my show, Pure, usually appears at the same time on the first and third Friday of the month. Once again, I'd like to thank Richard Butler for coming all the way to Bridgeport and letting me probe his past, present and future for your entertainment. Over the years, I've been very lucky and have had the distinct pleasure of working with some pretty legendary figures and playing a small part in the first success has been a highlight of my career. I'd like to thank Muff Winwood and David Betteridge for allowing that to happen, and early believers at Columbia Records, Ricky, Spock, Bruce Dickinson, and especially Peter Philbin for their help in introducing the band to the United States. If you like what we do here, feel free to volunteer or donate either by mail or online at wpkn.org, where you'll see a big red tab near the top of the page. It'll take very little time and we'll be able to keep doing what we do. You may also donate by calling the office 203-331-9756, where Steve, our general manager, will be happy to take down your particulars. Oh, matron. The number of people I speak to that grew up with WPKN as their radio station never fails to amaze me. And it's so gratifying to know there are people out there, let's say, of a mature age that still maintain a keen interest in today's music. Once a music lover, always a music lover. That just leaves me time to wish you all a terrific weekend. I'll see you next week. And remember... Look after yourselves, try to look after others, be smart, be kind to animals, and be nice. Here's the psychedelic furs with some flower power of their own. Ta-da!